Good to see your faces this morning. Make your way to the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians. We're going to open our time in prayer. Uh, really feel the strong, um, you know, some mornings you feel the, the sense just kind of plodding along in your own efforts a little more strongly than others. That's one of these mornings. So we really want to pause and say, Lord, we are, we are at your mercy to teach us and to change us. We don't want to endeavor <laughs> to travel through chapter one, verses one through five of this great book in our own efforts. And so we will, we will be lacking if we do that. So you're there, Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Excellent. I'm going to put my phone here because that may be causing the issue. I don't, I don't know. Um, don't let me forget that it's there, if you don't mind. Let's pray and then go before the Lord and ask for his help. Beautiful morning, absolutely beautiful morning. God, we do thank you for the beautiful day. We thank you that uh, just even my wife from reminding me this morning, your mercies are new and just washing over us. We're grateful for that mercy, that kindness. We thank you for the ways in which grace is revealed to us in very pronounced, life-changing ways in the book of Galatians as the gospel that we love and we cherish and that we're saved by is put on full display in this book. Lord, we're also mindful that in the midst of putting, on the, gospel, putting the gospel on display, you, you also do a corrective work in our lives to reveal uh, the spirit of self-righteousness, self-reliance, and pride, uh, our propensity to shift back towards works righteousness and a quest to seek to supplement and add to uh, a gospel, a saving work that otherwise is sufficient in and of itself because of who you are and what you have done. And so I pray that you would reveal that in us, you would really break us over the ugliness of that inclination, fill us with conviction, but also fill us with wonder and awe that you would be a God who would lavish undeserved kindness to us, your people. We are most undeserving. And so we give you all thanks and we pray this now for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at North Lake, we don't need to remind you this. We live under the conviction that our God, that the God that you're here to worship, delights to work in and through his people, and he does so through his revealed word to us. You and I do not need the opinions of man. Our spiritual growth and flourishing is not dependent upon the thoughts of this age. Amen? We're here to worship a great God who delights to shape us into his likeness. He shapes the way that we learn, how we think, how we love, and how we live. And he does so, I need but remind you, through this book, through his word. It is powerfully sufficient, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, for all that we need for life and godliness. And it's that conviction that really compels you and I to park ourselves in the book of Galatians over the next several months and to do so for his glory. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be blessed by what is the first of how many sections of Galatians? Did we remember from last week? Three sections to the book. We're in section one, chapters one and two, which really represents really the, the personal part of the letter, right? And I think the outline's in the PowerPoint this morning. Pablo, are you running the PowerPoint? Excellent. It's coming up. Okay, there we go. It's the personal part of the letter, right? God's people, his church in the southern part of Galatia, have been the recipients 
of God's grace. The very grace that's at the center of the gospel that says we are sinners. And then in that sin, we are not right with God. We as sinners are then made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Bottom line, we do not earn our salvation. We do not merit reconciliation with God. We cannot procure a right standing with him through our own efforts. No, God accomplishes this gift through the work of his son and then he bestows it upon us by his grace. Undeserved kindness of which all God's people said, thank you, Lord. And that brings us to the very message of the whole book, right? You'll recall all six chapters bound up in one statement would be this. The main idea over Galatians is this. God has freed us from the curse of the law, which, mind you, Romans 3.20 says, is incapable of justifying sinners. God has freed us from the curse of the law through the perfect work of his son so that we can be free to live for him. And the verse that rests over all of this is chapter five, verse one. By the time we reach it in the book, really even in the first month, you'll have this memorized. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, an important word here, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. To summarize this or to simplify it even further, we are set free in order to live free. Later in chapters three through, uh, chapters three through four, Paul's gonna provide the doctrinal backing of this glorious truth, elaborating and supporting the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And then in chapters five and six, he gives the practical implications of that grace worked out in the life of the believer. By way of reminder, the, really the issue going on in Southern Galatia, the issue that gave rise to the need of Paul having to write this letter was that the church was not, as Galatians 5.1 says, they were not standing firm in the gospel. You see, the Judaizers, this group that we'll really talk about extensively here in the weeks to come, they were coming up to the church in Southern Galatia and telling them that you are saved, yes, by faith alone, or you are saved by faith, but you're also saved by compliance. You are saved through saving faith as well as saving compliance. Well, friends, you and I know at the heart of the gospel is the truth that we are incapable of ever complying sufficiently to the law such as that is needed. There is only one who has, and there is only one who can, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's on full display in this book. And so if you picture Paul, especially as we began chapter one here, he is that spiritual parent, right? And, and you know what I'm talking about. He's watching his child run headlong into danger. And why is he watching his child run into danger? What is the child doing? You ever notice a child who's not looking in front of them, but staring down at their feet, right? All in an effort to avoid stepping on what? A crack in the sidewalk, right? Meanwhile, they're walking into, into traffic. And the child thinks that he or she will make it safely to their destination so long as they don't step on a crack in the sidewalk, so long as they avoid a misstep. What does Paul want? Paul yells out at the top of his lungs and, and he wants them to get their eyes up. He wants them to realize that the, the passage has already been secured. It's already, safe passage has already been granted. Your fare has already been paid. Your seat is secure. 
And the one who waits with you for you with open arms is the one who went to the cross on your behalf. Get your eyes up. Marvel at grace. Stand firm in the gospel. Keep standing firm. Someone is leading you astray. Which leads us to our passage today. Since there was major, a major invasion of confusion with the gospel, our main idea of chapter 1, 1 through 5 is this. Gospel clarity demands an urgent and straightforward response to gospel confusion. I'm going to say that again. Gospel clarity demands an urgent and straightforward response to gospel confusion. And when we say urgent and straightforward, that is simply the model we see exhibited here at the top of this letter. Remember, this is Paul's only, literally only epistle, which he does not give a word of commendation to his readers. Why? He simply doesn't have time to exchange pleasantries. And why is that? It's because when you're messing with the gospel, as the Galatians were, the stakes are simply too high. And so he gives them no commendation. He just jumps right in. And here at the outset of chapter 1, he really gives three clarifying objectives that's going to really frame the foundation of the entire book. It's going to deal with the matters that are concerning him. Objective number one is this. He sets out to reintroduce their attention to his authority. He wants to reintroduce their attention to his authority, verses 1 through 2. And why does he do this? Is because if you want a surefire path to deny the truthfulness of a message, what do you do? You begin to deny the authority of the one giving that message. Apparently, the Judaizers had convinced some in Galatia that Paul was a, what you would call a self-appointed apostle. And that being self-appointed, he had no divine commission. To which Paul quickly says the following, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. The first thing that Paul is compelled to mention is that he is an apostle. Now, an apostle, most of you know this, is like an Old Testament prophet in the sense that that individual possessed a divine calling. And when you read that, Paul, as an apostle, what does your mind hearken back to? What happened in Paul's life? The book of Acts. You can recall it, Acts chapter 9, right? You see the events recorded in Acts 9 where the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself stops Paul, or Saul at that juncture, dead in his tracks arrests him from his quest to persecute the church, and through that one encounter, Paul was radically and eternally altered. Paul's life was never the same post-Acts chapter 9. So Paul's opening words was a way of saying, hey, listen, I'm not just a preacher. I'm an authoritative eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. As a missionary, Paul was most certainly set apart by the church in Antioch. We can see that in Acts 13 and 14. But the thrust and force of verse 1 of Galatians, as an apostle, this meant so much more. He's not just commissioned by the church in Antioch. 
He's commissioned by Christ himself. Now, I would ask you, church, should that not have grabbed the attention of this young fledgling church in Galatia at that juncture? Absolutely. Paul, an apostle. I'll just point your attention to the fact that those three words, we often fly over them, do we not? But those three words, Paul, an apostle, are they not dripping with the grace of God? Why is that? It's because in many ways, Paul's credentials must have seemed rather weak to a majority of people both then and even now. After all, Paul was a latecomer. He was not a part of one of the original 12. And he may very well have never laid eyes on Christ in his public ministry. On top of that, You recall before Christ met him on the road to Damascus, what was Paul busy doing? Persecuting the church. That's exactly right. And yet even in that context, nevertheless, Christ called him to himself and called Paul not to just be a Christian, but to actually be an apostle, his messenger to the Gentiles, his representative coming with full authority. Secondly, is that Paul's name, Paul was named after Saul, and you recall Saul in the Old Testament. The first king of Israel, who physically speaking, you can look back at 1 Samuel 9 too, he was literally head and shoulders above everyone else. I don't necessarily know what that's like, but I trust it as a way of puffing up your chest a, a little bit. Saul, this tall, statured individual, And he takes on the name Paul, which is about the antithesis of the name Saul, right? You know what Paul means? It means little. He went from Saul to Paul. Even Augustine even suggested that perhaps Saul chose the name Paul as a way to commend the grace of God to sinners. Now, that's an attractive thought, to be sure. We cannot conclude, but it would actually fit quite nicely with the message of Galatians. But the main thought behind the name change may have been as much physical as it was spiritual. The reality is that physically speaking, Paul was not a very imposing figure. We know from Acts chapter 14 in the very city of Lystra, one of the four cities that Paul planted a church in Galatia, that Paul was actually mistaken as the little messenger Hermes, while Barnabas was mistaken as the main god, Zeus. And so from a worldly perspective, Paul seemed to have very little going for him. But from Christ's perspective, he was to be a messenger of salvation and a messenger of salvation to the Gentiles. And to that end, Paul abandons his Jewish name so that he might reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, all of this is the work of who? Paul, an apostle, not at the hands of man, but by God himself. And Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see, Peter didn't commission Paul. Peter, who addressed the crowd on the day of Pentecost, didn't confer the status of apostle on Paul. Nor did Ananias, who baptized Paul, or any of the church council or assembly. Why is that? It's because apostleship can only be commissioned and granted by the king and head of the church himself. 
and that is Christ. Church, when they would have read Paul, an apostle, your ears perk up in that time as well as it should for us as well. But just in case those in Galatia did not quite feel the full weight of Paul's authority or maybe were still reticent to trust his credibility, Paul adds one more nugget before he continues. And while it's the only time mentioned in the letter, this very nugget will be the foundation of Paul's whole forthcoming approach in the, in the letter. Look at the rest of verse 1. Paul, an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And here it is. Who raised him from the dead. What's the significance of this mention? The significance is that the resurrection of Christ is the supreme proof before the world and the highest testimony, highest testimony of God regarding the truth of the Christian faith. If Christ was raised from the dead, and he was, well, then all the other claims of the gospel and God's word really fall into place. And so Paul is in effect saying with urgency, And straightforwardness, in the name of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, I am writing this letter to you. It comes with full authority. I'm just going to make you mindful for a moment. What's going to follow verses 1 through 5 is urgent. It is straightforward. It's a bit bit stern. There's rebuke here. He he, He doesn't mince words. He jumps right to it. Why? Again, because the gospel is too important to waste time. This authority that Paul has is coming from Christ himself. But it's also been forged through a ministry laden with pain. And that's even hinted at in the rest of the introduction. What do we mean by pain in Paul's life? I want you to read verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle. But look down to verse 2. Again, another phrase we commonly fly over. For Paul simply writes, and all the brethren who are with me. But there's something here. As Paul writes in an authoritative way, he he does refer to other brothers with him, but he does not name them like he normally does. If you go to his other epistles, you'll find other names that Paul is always referencing, and he he doesn't here. Why? What do you make of this? The fact that not even Barnabas is named. Mind you, Barnabas, who literally accompanied Paul on that first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, perhaps indicates that the wounds revealed in Galatians 2.13 are still a bit raw for Paul. Look at chapter 2. The rest of the Jews joined him. And and by him, that's, that's the apostle Peter. We'll talk about this extensively going forward. But the rest of the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. What was going on here? We see Peter, who was living in a gross, faulty state of hypocrisy at this juncture. Peter went from Acts chapter 10, learning that the Gentiles were equally acceptable before God through Christ. It was a mind-blowing event in the early church. As a vision from heaven came, comes to Peter from God himself three times, making it clear that what God has called clean, Peter do not call common. And the point of that vision was obvious, right? 
You had the conversion of Cornelius as well as other Gentiles in Caesarea. And at that juncture, Peter saw these Gentiles as being equal even in all their Gentileness. Why were they equal to Jews? It's because Jesus alone is enough to make anyone kosher before God. So much so that even Cornelius, when he fell down at Peter's feet to, to worship him and the other Jews there, they declined that special honor. You are in equal standing with us because of grace. But now it's obvious that something's gone on in Peter's life and we can relate to this. We can start off really well, but all of us can falter. All of us can have missteps and that was the case in Peter's own life because Peter is now, and we'll expound upon this later, he's now attempting to nullify the grace of God by complicating it with legalism. He cowards in the sight of the Judaizers and begins denying through his actions the very doctrine that God had handed to him in Acts chapter 10. He separates himself from his Gentile brothers in a very embarrassing, gross fashion and even begins insisting that they be circumcised and add to their faith the keeping of the law before being welcomed into fellowship. And the tragic nature of this failing lies in the fact that the hypocrisy was not isolated to Peter. Others, like Barnabas, were being, as Paul writes, carried away. You want to know why Paul writes this letter? He is that spiritual parent looking out at his Gentile, Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ and Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And these individuals are being carried away by a deception which is gross and antithetical to the gospel. And so here's Paul writing this letter. He's pricked to the core to call out this hypocrisy. And he simply says, Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers with me. I have no need to name names as I usually do. As some of the dearest brothers that you know, men like Barnabas, who first visited Galatia with me, even they are too busy being carried away and being carried away from the outworking implications of justification by faith alone. Friends, even this very brief, casual mention is tinted with a rebuke that hypocrisy was not in accord with the gospel. We have to ask this morning as we kind of march our way through the first few verses of this book, we always want to be cognizant of, Lord, what do you want us to do with this? How do you want us to change? And how do we live what we learn? What do we make of these efforts to reacquaint them to his authority? Well, the implications are fairly clear to us. I think one is that we are compelled and prompted and urged to ourselves treasure apostolic authority. You see, to reject Christ... Or to reject Paul is to reject Christ, plain and simple. There is no other way of knowing Christ except by reading the apostolic record of him. And so at its core, any confusion with the gospel lies inherently in a deviation from God's written revelation found in these pages. You want to be able to test and you want to be able to measure the ideas as of, as Paul says, this present evil age. What do you measure it by? You measure it in the scales of this book. And of course, this has ongoing relevance for you and I today, does it not? Not only are believers being deceived, right? What you and I are not being told to be circumcised in order to be welcomed in, in order to enjoy fellowship. That's not existing in our life. 
But there still is a gross form of deception that we see all around us, yes? Believers, even today, are being deceived into thinking that they need something beyond Scripture in order to attain and achieve a higher degree of spirituality. A deception, mind you, that is even being propagated by so-called church leaders and even grossly Christian publishers ad nauseum. But even today, the apostolic authority of Paul, even the authority of Paul is questioned and repudiated in the church. For instance, not only did the world revere such philosophers in the not so distant past like John Stuart Mill and Frederick Nietzsche, but even in 2015 in Sydney, Australia, you had St. Andrew's College who was faced with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, and there was a theological battle ensued about the ordination of women as pastors and teachers, right? There's what the Bible says regarding these things. And St. Andrew's College had a war thinking, you know what, we can disregard the Bible and women can be ordained as pastors and teachers. And the principal of St. Andrew's College, Dr. Peter Cameron, was, was basically met with opposition from the New Testament itself. And you know what Dr. Peter Cameron, principal of St. Andrew's College said, when faced with the apostolic authority of God's word, he simply said, so what? What's the principal doing there? He is placing his authority above and beyond the authority of God's word. And friends, I need not tell you, church, that when you do that, it's a very, very serious thing in the, thing in the eyes of God. Our attitude to all of scripture should not be Dr. Peter, Peter Cameron. Our attitude to every word that you read in these pages should be one of reverence and submission it should be the same as the Puritans like William Perkins. I want you to read what, he, what William Perkins wrote. He said, seeing then the writings of the apostles are the immediate and mere word of God, they must be obeyed as if they had been written without man by the very finger of God. This statement struck me this week. When I'm reading God's word, am I reading it with the effect of my life? I am reading words written by the very finger of God. It's an important question to ask oneself. We should treasure apostolic authority. Paul was sent with the divine commission and he wants us to be very plain. He speaks with urgency and straightforwardness because gospel clarity demands it as he reintroduces their attention to his authority. Second objective would be, he also, re also wants to reorient their awareness to the proper message. They say that correctly. Reorient their awareness to the proper message. That's in verses three and four. You see, the Galatians are in major need of recalibration. And so Paul sets out to realign their gaze. And in verses three through four, he tells them the basic content of the gospel. He simply writes, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Grace and peace, peace and grace. Everyone wants grace and peace, right? Grace, God's unconditional, undeserved kindness bestowed upon his people. 
Peace is the result of this grace expressed in pronounced ways in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the cause and effect of the gospel and characterizes many of Paul's greetings found in his letters, right? Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace come from God in Christ, each unified in their efforts to save sinners. God in Christ, Christ in God, they are one and the same, right? And grace and peace come from them. In fact, J. Gresham Machen called verse 3 the most stupendous ascription to the deity of our Lord. So that what's the implication? Friends, if you are in need of grace, I want to be very clear about this. If you are in need of grace, and you are, and if you desire peace, and you should, to whom do you look to? You look to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because notice how Paul deals with these young and wayward converts, and they are young. We're not that far removed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is young. And he doesn't take these believers out behind the woodshed for a good old-fashioned whipping. He doesn't banish them to the doghouse for their retribution. He doesn't vent his frustration across Facebook. He doesn't tweet their crime in 140 characters or less. No, he comes alongside them. And what does he do? He takes them back to where it all began. He takes them back to grace. He takes them back to grace. So that in effect, he's saying, yes, you may have made a mess of things, and you have, and we're going to talk about it. Now, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, I'm not going to mince words. I'm going to be very direct. And where rebuke is granted, I'm going to extend it. And he does later in chapter two. But even in that, all is not lost. Amen? Go back to where you began. Go back to grace. And there you will find just what you need. He brings them back to grace. Grace and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You make your way to verse 4. You want to talk about a powerful confessional statement, verse 4 is. Because in this one verse, Paul really confesses several truths of which we should also gladly confess. Number one, we should confess and acknowledge and believe and understand that the world is under sin, right? I I really don't need to convince you of this, no? The world is under sin. It is the present, what kind of age? Evil age. And he's not just referring to the evil of the first century, He's referring to what is true of the world post-Genesis 3. That the entire world is cursed by God for its sin and its rebellion. And that the same Christ, the very same Christ, who was raised from the dead is doing now what? He is conferring grace and conferring peace to a world that is presently under the wrath of God for their sin. So that the implication is, friends, to fail to trust this Christ is the worst of possible news. It is to remain enslaved to a sinful world that lies in the clutches and power of the evil one, of Satan himself. But thankfully, even as we see in Ephesians 2, right? But God, thankfully, there's also good news. Yes, the world is under sin. But secondly, Christ gave himself to set us free from our enslavement, of which all God's people said, thank you, Lord. 
to rescue us. It was in the midst of our sad state, and really sad doesn't do it justice, that Christ gave himself for many sinners so that they might be what? Delivered from their bondage. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And friends, the preposition for there in in verse four signifies a wonderful substitution took place, right? I don't want this lost on a believer who may have been in Christ for decades. I want this to rest on you. Christ gave himself for your sin. Let that sit for a moment. Christ died in my place. And he did so according to the will of our God and Father. Church, this and this alone is what won our redemption. Amen? Christ died for us. Forgiveness, deliverance are only won by Christ. So North Lake Wagalatians is about grace. And it is about grace. Justification by grace alone through faith alone. I need you to be mindful as you read verse four, it's not cheap grace, is it? It's costly grace. In fact, pastor theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you'll recall opposed the rise of fascism in Germany, he was arrested in 1943 and executed for treason in 1944. And Bonhoeffer famously asserted in the face, mind you, of spiritually anemic Protestantism, that was wavering in a sea of cheap grace, he wrote the following. He said, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of the church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. And church family today, some 75 years later, our situation is still very much the same. Much of the church in North America is awash with cheap grace. And not to good effect. Paul is clear that it is costly grace. Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us. He gave himself for our sins. And Northlake, what is interesting about verse 4, if this was not enough, is that this is more than likely literally Paul's first written statement about the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection that he puts pen to paper. This is going to be something that he's going to give his entire life proclaiming that Christ didn't just come to pay for 90% of your sins. Christ paid the penalty of your sin in full. And what is the penalty of that sin? The wages of sin is, is death. Christ paid it in full. The penalty is death. Christ died for all the sins of his sheep, his bride, his elect. To quote and cite J.B. Lightfoot, he says, the gospel is a rescue, an emancipation from a state of bondage. It tells of something Christ has done, not something which you and I must do. (laughs) I saw several of you said, amen, absolutely. To which we ask, what do we make of this? How How do I live what I learn? What do we make of Paul's efforts to reorient? Number one is cherish, church, the distinctiveness of the gospel. Cherish the distinctiveness of the gospel. It's here where Christianity is distinct from literally all other world religions. You don't need to be a a master apologist, right? And know every intricacy about every 
every cult upon this planet. You need to simply ask, what is their view of God in Christ? What is their review of God's word? What is their holy book? What's their standard of authority? And what is their pathway to salvation? That's it. And it's here that Christianity is distinct. For at the heart of all other religions is some form of works righteousness. For instance, you take a devotee of Hinduism and you ask, how are we saved? That Hindu will tell you that Krishna, the name of their chief false god, makes us perfect in this life and thus worthy of salvation. Furthermore, the devotees of Krishna believe that you Members of the Abrahamic faith, when they pray to Allah or Christians, when they pray to Yahweh, we're all really praying to the same God. You ask a Muslim, how are we saved? And they will tell you that the Quran teaches that forgiveness and salvation is a combination of Allah's grace and the Muslim's works. That a Muslim can become righteous through prayer and almsgiving and fasting and living according to the Quran. And on the day of judgment, If a Muslim's good works outweigh his bad ones, and if Allah wills it, then he may be forgiven of all of his sin and be welcomed into his paradise. Which is why, according to the Muslim faith, there is absolutely no assurance of salvation. And how terrifying and sad is that? Islam is the world's most uncertain religion regarding salvation. For instance... Whenever Muslims mention the name of Muhammad, what do they say after it? Peace be upon him. Why? It's because Muhammad's eternal destiny is not certain. And so they're pleading and asking that Allah be merciful to him. You ask a Mormon, how are we saved? And they will tell you that you are saved by faith through grace after all you can do. In Roman Catholicism, God's grace is infused to into a believer that then enables them to do good works by which then he is judged for salvation. But church, the Bible's message is abundantly clear. It is Christ who saves. Christ and Christ alone. He doesn't offer you help so that you can save yourself. This is why Martin Luther commented on this passage, verse 4, Galatians 1, these words are very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. The churches in Galatia evangelized first and foremost by Paul himself. They were losing this wonderful doctrine that our only righteousness before God is in Christ. And his response shows that to depart from that gospel is no minor aberration. He writes with urgency and straightforwardness because again, gospel clarity demands it. But his third objective, you note it in verse 5, he also redirects their aim to to the proper end. He redirects their aim to the proper end. Simple phrase, but not to be lost, to whom? Who's whom? Well, it's the individuals in verse 4. To whom? Whom is Christ who gave himself for us? To whom is God who willed that work of redemption so that we could be with him forever. We could be reconciled, made right. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Nowhere else in his epistles does Paul utter a doxology at the end of his introduction, but he does so here. 
He refers to our God and Father in verse 4. And then he adds, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Literally, to the ages of ages forever. Salvation comes from him. So it's logical and right that all glory should go to him. Plain and simple. John Calvin plainly stated that here, all pride, we have gross forms of pride. All pride is beaten down. Man cannot boast of anything save the free grace of God. Friends, the message of the epistle to the Galatians is that the free grace of God in Jesus Christ is more than sufficient for you. And to that, for you and I as Christians, all we can do is say, amen, to whom be the glory forever and ever. But how do we live what we learn? What do we, what's, what do, what's the takeaway? What do we make of Paul's efforts to re- redirect their aim? One, I would encourage you, I think one of the things we're going to come out of from the book of Galatians is we're going to be a people being very leery of drifting. Be leery of drifting. Why? It's because it doesn't take long to drift, does it? And this should be a warning to us all. Drifting is insidious. It's subtle. It happens in the dead of night without you even realizing it. Less than 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this fledgling church, now spreading north and west, is already in significant trouble. Why? It's because they were already deviating from the gospel. Right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I did not come with you with, to you with eloquent words. I came to you with a simple message. Christ and him crucified. And they're already deviating from this truth. And this drifting away can take on all sorts of nuanced expressions, both in the doctrinal realm as well as the practical realm. And Paul's going to address both throughout this letter. You see, we as fallen human beings, and we are, we have the all-too-easy capacity of allowing erroneous theological propositions to enter into our minds. Propositions which are not only unbiblical, but they're also incongruent with the gospel. And in that fallenness, not only do we have the capacity to believe wrong things, and we do all the time, but those wrong beliefs then give way to what? To wrong behavior, wrong actions. And our community and culture within the church can remain unaffected by the gospel as it rightfully should. And for friends, whenever either of those whether we've drifted away doctrinally or maybe even practically, we do it in subtle ways. If, if, if you can sift it out in your own lives, we have vestiges of this urge, this inclination to gravitate towards legalism as if we're meriting favor with God in so doing. Why do, we, why do we live a righteous life? Why do we want to honor the Savior? It's because verse 5 of chapter 1, to whom be the glory forever and ever. It's not because I have to measure up more good works based upon the the kind of spatting with my wife that I had earlier. I don't have to do something to counter my impatience with my children. There's grace. You repent, you confess, you approach it with brokenness and contrition and humility, but there's always grace. And your standing before God is never altered in the sense of once you're his, right? John 10, those are mine. 
I will never let go. No one will snatch them from my hand. John 8, right? This is the will of the Father that those who he gives me, I lose nothing. I want you to think about that for a moment. I lose nothing. You cannot be lost. There's always grace. Rest in that and be compelled to secondly, not only be leery of drifting, cherish the gospel, love the gospel, know the gospel, grow in the gospel, but but secondly, be doxological people. What do I mean by that? Our lives should have a doxological flavor. Wait, that's a big word. Derek's saying, wait, explain it for me, right? Doxo, glory, honor, logia, meaning speak, word, literally glory speak. What are we talking about here? Our lives should embody Galatians 1.5, should it not? Every fiber of our being, the aroma of our lives should be to the praise of a great God who's lavished you with grace. To the extent that those who know you should say, there goes a man who loves the Lord and the Lord loves him, I can tell. There goes a woman who's been affected by grace and her life is radically altered. There goes a Christian whose greatest aspiration in life is to render praise to their savior. I would ask you this morning, is that what people say when they think of you? There goes someone whose chief aspiration is to render praise to their savior. That's a convicting question perhaps to ask oneself. We should be doxological people. Paul sets out to reintroduce their attention to his authority, which was being undermined. He wanted to reorient their awareness to the proper message for they were being confused. And he wanted to redirect their aim to the proper end, to whom be the glory forever. Every phase of that was being altered and impacted by a false gospel. Guess what Paul's gonna do in the remainder of this letter? He's gonna start throwing biblical spiritual grenades into that false gospel room. And he's gonna begin to dismantle it. And you know what's gonna come out on the other side? A gospel that's kept pure. Believers who are resting in the assurance of their salvation and growing and flourishing because of it, who are loving their savior, Christ is honored. His work on the cross is not diminished in any way for it cannot be supplemented. And their lives in the church in Galatia is gonna be marked by to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. That should be North Lake Bible Church, yes? And may God make it so, absolutely. Let's pray this morning. God, we, we do ask that you would, you would work that in us. We thank you for this book as we look beyond verse five next week. We're, we're already excited, we're eager. Uh, to hear this urgent, straightforward word. We need to rest under it, be corrected by it. I I want us to be mindful that we're a a gospel-believing church. We cherish your word. We hold it in high regard. And yet, Lord, there's there's all sorts of vestiges of self-righteousness in all of us that literally need to be struck down at its core, at its root. We pray that you would take your spirit and work that in our lives. And I pray that the result is that we would just all the more marvel at the sweetness and power and wonder of grace that comes from your hand. It is not a cheap grace. It has come with great cost and has been lavished upon us, undeservingly so, and we're grateful. We are grateful. I pray that the, the remaining hour in front of us would only be tempered, <laughs> would only be impacted by what we see in this book, uh, that our, our singing would be marked with sincerity and fervency and energy, 
uh, that there would be no realm of hypocrisy in this place as we take the Lord's table, that you would break us of our sin. We would approach the Lord's table with, with contrition and brokenness. We would approach it in a worthy manner for you are worthy. And we pray that the preaching of your word would go forward with power and conviction. Be with our pastor, help him speak with clarity, but also as those who listen, may we sit on the edge of our seat, spiritually speaking, ready to receive what you have for us, joyfully eager to submit to all of its authority in our life. And Lord, we pray this again, all to your glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.